this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. <laughs> you would do if you had nothing better to do. What, what were you laughing at? Because you didn't, you just like paused for like a long time after it seemed long. Mm. Like <laughs> I guess that pause. was that was funny. <laughs> I always I pause know. to let you finish the. Well, I thought maybe you forgot what you were supposed to It's say. our after all these after this is our eighty second episode, no, and I I've been said, doing well, that every episode. Wow! And it suddenly and anyway, I know we oh. In our logo, our new That's logo, we have. designed by you, is launched, and all our loyal Patreon listeners yeah. are going to get some special gifts with the new logo on it to celebrate, which I'm going to put in the mail this week. Hopefully, the post office will still be operating. Yes. So anyway, yeah. we should probably... Yes, so you have a mini. Right. Is it a main mini? It's kind of a are main gonna mini. Are we going to play the song that yes, everyone we probably are. hates? Yeah, it starts out as a main mini, and then... Um, are you going to play the song? Yes. Right now. So, like I was saying before the song, it starts out as a mini, and then it expands okay. to... Um, oh, I'm intrigued. There was a story in this morning's Main Sunday Telegram that said incidents of domestic violence have increased during Ugh. the COVID-19 pandemic, as I'm sure... I'm sure that doesn't surprise anyone. You know, people are stuck in their homes. Financial issues are becoming more acute. There's a higher level of anxiety. Fewer places for people to turn. I mean, the places exist, but it's harder to get out of the house and get to places. Coincidentally, Maine had yet another domestic violence murder last week. Natasha Morgan, 19, of Lewiston, was shot to death Friday afternoon after her boyfriend, Jaquiel Coleman, dropped their one-year-old daughter off at Morgan's house. Morgan had put the baby in her mother's car, I think. News stories are very muddled on this. I don't know why I, I expect things to make sense, but I still do. I guess it's the old newspaper editor in me. And as she was walking away from putting the baby in her mother's car, Coleman shot her three to five times. As of this recording, police have an arrest warrant for murder out for Coleman, who is still at large. Morgan's death was the second known domestic violence homicide in Maine this year. There have been nine homicides altogether, from what I can figure out from going through news accounts. And this is when we miss Steve McCausland, the longtime spokesman for the Maine State Police, who retired at the end of June, because not only have there been initial homicide articles that haven't been followed up on, but no one has included any background about where the state stands for homicides this year or for domestic violence ones, like the one about Morgan that happened Friday and this is Sunday, didn't mention that it was, I think, the second one of the year. As you know, if you've been listening to us for a while, there are generally anywhere from 15 to 25 murders in Maine a year. Normally half of them are domestic violence, but of the nine that I could come up with, those are the only two, although the motives on some haven't been made clear. The nine homicides we've had include three by one guy down east in February in Machias and Jonesport. He killed two guys and a woman 
and he critically injured another woman who was the girlfriend of one of the guys. Police hadn't released much info, including possible motive, back in February, and there hasn't been much since. They said more information would be released when the grand jury convened in the coming months, quote-unquote. But right after that COVID hit, so maybe the this is in Washington County, which is way down east, maybe their grand jury hasn't convened. I don't believe it's domestic violence related, though he did know the people. It seems more like a Carl Draga-style settling perceived scores kind of thing. But we'll find out. So I think that's kind of skewed the stats a little. By the way, that's been referred to in articles as a shooting spree, which never feels quite right to me. You know, ooh-wee, spree, you know, ah, I'm shooting everybody, isn't this fun? You know, it just seems like I've never felt like that was a... Yeah, it's kind of like when you win a shopping spree. Right. It it feels like more like a celebratory thing. I I call it more of a rampage, I guess, would be my preferred word. Yes, that's a better word. And of the other four homicides in Maine that I could find this year, uh, there was another one last week where an adult male in his 40s allegedly killed his mother up in the Bangor area who was in her 60s. The other three are guys apparently pissed off about something, killing other guys or protecting themselves from guys who are pissed off about something. One, I think, was in self-defense because a grand jury wouldn't indict on it. This was in a different county, I guess, that is holding grand jury sessions. And none of them really have a lot of information available. So anyway, I didn't come here to chronicle Maine's 2020 murders, but to talk about domestic violence, or rather, so I prefer domestic abuse, because as we talk about this, you'll see violence is only a small part of it. Both Morgan and Anilka Allen, 37, who was killed in Newport, Maine in early January, she's the other domestic violence homicide, were leaving relationships, or trying to, when they were killed. In the Allen's case, she and her husband, Frederick, 40, had filed for divorce on December 9th. On December 10th, Anilka wrote to the court and asked for an expedited hearing because Frederick had taken the kids. They have three teenagers. Quote, I do not know where my kids are and unable to speak or see them, she wrote in her request. On December 16th, she wrote to the court again asking to dismiss the pending divorce because they were going to attend marriage counseling and work things out. On January 9th, one month after they'd initially filed for divorce, Anilka was dead by asphyxiation, manual strangulation, and Frederick was charged with murder. He's pleaded not guilty and is in Penobscot County Jail in Bangor awaiting trial next February. In Morgan's case, the recent one that happened in Lewiston, Natasha Morgan's mother said that Natasha had broken up with Coleman, but he didn't want to break up. One news story said they, quote, had a dispute about the baby and implied that's why she was shot. Not only is there nothing in the story to back that up, but you don't go to a baby exchange with a loaded gun if you don't intend to use it for some reason. The coverage of both the Maine's domestic violence murders this year, in fact, as little as has been written about them, have reporting issues that highlight the misconceptions, myths, and lack of context I want to discuss. The articles on the Allen killing... That's because they don't have a good editor like you. Damn fucking right. Thank you. They had their chance. They threw it away. And to tell you the truth, I'd rather be doing this, where I can say things like that, than trying to shepherd a lackluster bunch of low curiosity (laughs) sheep through the paces of journalism 101. Not that that's what's happening in Maine, because God knows. But anyway, 
The articles on the Allen killing, with information from Frederick Allen's sister, imply his wife was the problem, and also include phrases like, they had an abusive relationship, they had a rocky relationship, etc. The couple, who I said had three teenagers, have been married for 19 years, and he is a veteran who has PTSD, according to his sister. She told police, according to the affidavit, that they'd had problems for years. The sister said that Alan never laid a hand on his wife, but she hit him in the face once and, quote, could be pretty violent when she lost her temper, unquote. Be that as it may, she is dead, and he didn't have a mark on him. And he looks like a fairly big guy from what I could see. She does not look like a big woman, but it was only a head and shoulders shot that I could find of her online. So I mentioned many times before that when someone is killed in a domestic violence situation, people want to look for some reason for it. It's funny how they look at things like, quote, they were fighting over the baby or, quote, she pushed his buttons, rather than the fact that it is a domestic abuse situation and that's the reason someone's dead. We've also talked a lot about how red flags are missed, particularly those that don't include violence, like coercive control and financial abuse or control, which happens in 90 to 94 percent of domestic abuse situations where one person winds up dead. The fact that physical abuse is the biggest red flag is one of the big misconceptions. Another one is almost as many men as women are abused, or it happens to men too. I was recently writing an article for one of my part-time jobs about financial abuse as part of domestic abuse and violence and came across some interesting stats. I had to look hard for them because almost every site I looked to for research had the stat that one in three women and one in four men suffer physical abuse in a relationship. But none of those, even ones that are advocates for domestic violence support and things, went further to offer any context. I'd recently heard Laura Richards talk about context on Real Crime Profile. She's one of the few people who does. So I knew the stats were out there somewhere, and I finally dug some up. The context of that ubiquitous statistic, one in three women, one in four men, is that it includes everything from systemic chronic abuse that leads to and includes murder, down to someone getting slapped once. The deeper statistics show that women are almost exclusively subjected to long-term systemic abuse in a relationship that goes beyond physical and includes other methods of control and abuse. Here are some that people may find interesting, and these are from the New York Office of Prevention of Domestic Violence, and these are statistics for abusive heteronormal relationships, male-women heterosexual relationships. I didn't want to get into the whole same-sex or trans There is abuse, you know, across the spectrum, but the huge majority of abuse is in male-female heterosexual relationships, and that's where most of the misconceptions, particularly regarding um, domestic violence homicide, are. So that's what I'm going to look at here. Here's some numbers for you. 29% of relationships that report abuse report domestic violence, which is long-term systemic violence that's ongoing, one-sided, often severe, and escalating and control-motivated, as opposed to somebody flying off the handle and slapping somebody, whether it's male or female, across the face once or throwing a dish at them or something. 97% of the abusers are men. 23% of abusive relationships report responsive violence, which is occasional, one-sided, not severe, or escalating, and is aimed at attempting to forestall an attack, defend oneself or others, or control an escalating situation. 96% of those using this kind of domestic violence are women. 
97% of domestic abusers are men who have a female partner. So that goes to, you know, the other types of relationships. Yes, there is abuse, but 97% of all domestic abusers documented ones. Hmm, they're very interesting. Yes, are men who have a female partner. The report I'm quoting from says heterosexual men's domestic abuse is grounded in both inequalities in power and resources between women and men and social rules for male-female relationships. This context creates entitlement for men and vulnerability for women and makes men's violence work very well to control their female partners, the report says. Evan Stark, the pioneer of coercive control studies, points out that the tactics of men who abuse women specifically target aspects of sexual inequality, such as what he calls women's, quote, default consignment to housework, caretaking, and sexual services. Coercive control is built on the rules for victims' daily conduct as a woman, which makes it hard to tell where the constraints of women's gender role leave off and where coercive control begins. No parallel thing happens to men, Stark says, even to men with abusive partners. Quote, male violence is more apt to be a pattern to be repeated in subsequent relationships rather than situational in a particular relationship, the report says. Perpetrators who are arrested for domestic violence crimes or the violation of an order of protection are overwhelmingly male and their victims are overwhelmingly female. Men are also typically the perpetrators of more serious acts of violence. For instance, one study found the following breakdown in what men and women said their partner did to them. Threw something at me, 8.1% women, 4.4% men said that their partner did that. Push, grabbed, or shoved me, 18.1% women, 5.4% men. Slapped or hit me, 16% women, 5.5% men. Beat me up, 8.5% women, 0.6% men. 99% of the people who've reported being strangled, though the incorrect term choked is used most often, and as we know, because we've discussed it before, choked is when you get something caught in your throat that obstructs your airway that can be removed by like the Heimlich maneuver. You're choking on something. Strangulation, when somebody puts their hands or something else around your neck and squeezes to try to kill you, that strangulation. Yes. 99% of the people who've reported being strangled in an abusive relationship are women. As we know, strangulation in an abusive relationship is one of the big markers for future murder. Women who are strangled by a partner are 750% more likely to be ultimately killed by that partner Ooh. than those who aren't. That's a lot. Yeah, because strangulation is a control, yeah. very personal control thing. Yeah. The, the smallest group of women who use violence in a relationship are women who actually abuse their partner. There are a couple of major reasons for this, according to the report. Women's attempts to dominate men are much more likely to fail because sexual discrimination allows men privileged access to the material and social resources needed to gain advantage in power struggles. And norms for female behavior work against women becoming abusers. These norms include deference to men, the pressure to be nice, adapt to things you don't like, endure what you can't control, soothe other people's anger, the constant need to shut up and keep your feelings to yourself, especially anger, keep the peace, keep the family together, take responsibility for how men treat you, and don't be too, quote, demanding. I try not to. I know. Those, uh, I know. 
I was going to say, those, all those things have got me in trouble, not conforming to those things. More with work than... Um, but also, you haven't been abused. Right, I have not been, I want to say that, I have not been abused in a relationship. Not that it's part of this, but all I those know. things can get a woman in trouble at work, too, you know? I know. I mean, not following all those things. As the report points out, this doesn't mean women can't be abusive, but it means the social power norms and more work against women engaging in co- coercive control, which is the basis of a lot of abuse. Law enforcement and everything is looking at conflict, and lots of times you hear, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute, they're both equally guilty because they were fighting, whereas... Those who look at the deeper issues look at the coercive control, which is the foundation for the abuse. One big myth the report takes aim at is that the number of female abusers only seems small because most male victims are too ashamed to contact law enforcement or domestic violence services. The reality is that there is little evidence that male victims report abuse significantly less than women do. In 2008, for instance, an estimated 72% of intimate partner violence against males was reported to police versus only 49% of intimate partner violence against females. When men don't report an incident to police, they usually say it's because they see it as a private or personal matter, not that they feel ashamed or embarrassed. Researchers and service providers say that men readily tell researchers that they are being hit. They complain in court about mistreatment during divorce and custody cases and insist in counseling that they are the ones who are being abused. Researchers and service providers also say that a committed public effort to reach out to heterosexual male victims has not resulted in domestic violence programs suddenly discovering that they need to rethink their emphasis on serving women. And most importantly, they don't see heterosexual men, as opposed to women, whose self-esteem is destroyed by abuse, who give up school and career progress because of abuse, who are forced into unwanted sex, or who flee for their lives. People intervene in abuse more than they used to, and if those men were out there, someone would have noticed, the report says. Responsive violence, that's violence responding to the abuse afflicted on you, is the largest single category of violence by women. Over half of women's violence overall is in response to male violence. Only a small percentage of intimate partner violence by men is in response to abuse by a partner. I know some listeners may think I'm a broken record on this, but I think it's important to keep talking about it. I get frustrated not only reading news stories that fall into the same old pattern, but also listening to podcasts, watching true crime shows, and more that also are clueless about it or promote the old myths. I've heard on a couple different podcasts lately that are about domestic violence murders or attempted murders that, quote, there are two sides to every story and imply there's no evidence the guy was abusive before a death or an attempted death. And it's a he said, she said thing. Yet these stories also chronicle obvious coercive control behavior almost all the time. Things like not allowing the woman to get a job or controlling her finances in other ways, ordering her around to the point where it's noticed by family and friends, keeping her away from family and friends, being hypercritical of her behavior, her looks, her housekeeping, and more. The Washington Post found in 2018 that half of women murdered in the U.S. were killed by a current or former domestic partner. One-third of their killer... Yes, and one-third of their killers were known as abusers before the murder. I'm asking everyone to be critical thinkers when it comes to the information presented to you about a domestic violence murder or an apparent one. You know that women's stories of abuse are often discounted, 
that when they do report, they're often treated like they did something wrong, that they constantly have to explain themselves, that the obvious lies the guy tells are given the same weight to the woman's story of abuse, even when it's obvious the guy is lying or has been controlling. We don't have to put up with it, and we shouldn't, and that starts with understanding the context of domestic violence. And that's my kind of mini slash sermon Thank slash. Thank you. Yeah. I just get Thank frustrated because I, I think I've just heard so many things recently that suppose things and that, you know, I it just is frustrating to me. And the I think. The thing that used to drive me nuts and still does is when, when the guys always say, well, we were violent with each other. Right. Right, and that's like, one. Give me a break. And that's one thing that that the report I was just talking about kind of disabuses the whole myth that when you know, like one of the domestic violence murders in Maine this year, the Allens, there's this implication that they had a quote abusive relationship, which yeah. implies that it's both people attacking the other. When it goes on for that long, there's an abuser and there's an abusee. Yes. You know? Exactly. And one of them ends up dead and one of them ends up <laughs> blaming the victim. That's so, right. But yeah. now you have. I'm looking forward to... Yeah. Because I don't know what your topic is and I'm excited well, about finding you out. you might get it. I'm going to tell you what my sources were. Should I signal when I when I figure out what it is? Uh, yeah, you might. And I'm sure that our listeners don't think this, but it still sticks in my craw, that bad review we got where the guy said, I can read Wikipedia myself. This one, I didn't even touch Wikipedia or Murderpedia. You know, I want to say the only reason I ever go to Wikipedia is for the links at the bottom to find original sources if for I need orig- If I can't find any. The one yeah. thing we don't do ever is just cut and paste from Wikipedia or any source. No, I don't cut and paste from anyone. We do a lot so of research. So these were my resources for this freaking thing. It was more complicated than I thought it would be. And I thought this would be kind of a quick one because the one I had planned to do, I read a book, was afraid that it would be too long and involved because when you read a book, there's yes. more stuff. And then I ended up reading a book with this one, but the book wasn't that good. So whatever. But, <laughs> but the... Other source material, I mean, there's so much of it. So let me go through. I'm going to tell you what my sources were because a lot of stuff was like little bits and pieces from a lot of different places and then where there was significant quotes and stuff I put in it. Source. Forensic Files, Season 2, Episode 11, from so it was from 1997, mm. called Postal Mortem, which is a stupid name because it really has nothing to do with this case. WesternForensicExaminer.com. Deseret News, KUTV News, Salt Lake Tribune, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints site, Los Angeles Times, IOBA Standard, which is the Journal of Independent Online Booksellers Org, FairMormon.org, Utah History Encyclopedia, and The Poet and the Murderer by Simon Worrell. Those mm. are all my sources, and I probably had a couple others, but uh, they didn't have enough stuff in them for me to be worth noting them. So you haven't figured it out yet, right? I think I may have, but I don't know the case well enough to know for sure. Okay. 
On the morning of October 15, 1985, Steve Christensen went to his office on the sixth floor of the Judge Building in downtown Salt Lake City. When he got to his office door, he noticed a package on the floor wrapped in brown paper with his name written in black marker. As he picked up the package, it exploded. Steve did not die instantly. A person who had an office on the same floor found him whimpering, covered in blood and burns, but he didn't live long. When police came, the ATF was there too, and ATF stands for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which is more than just a fun party. (laughs) 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 No, um, there are federal people from the United States know who the ATF is, but they're a federal agency that investigate crimes, of course, involving alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. A lot of those are, you know, selling those items without licenses and all that jazz, or smuggling them, but they also investigate arson and bombs. Investigators gathered evidence that indicated Steve Christensen was a victim of a pipe bomb. When they replicated the bomb based on the evidence they found, they came up with a pipe bomb made from about a foot-long length of galvanized pipe, with 101-inch masonry nails taped around it. Ouch. Yeah. And the reason bombers put, I mean, this might seem obvious, but in case anyone doesn't know, you put nails or or projectiles in it so to for the maximum damage. Because just this thing exploding might not really hurt somebody, but when there's crap coming out of it at you, that's what's going to kill you. They found a mercury switch in the debris, and a mercury switch is made from a glass tube, that has a blob of mercury inside. One end of the tube has the fuse, and when the bomb is tipped, the blob of mercury runs to the end of the tube and activates the fuse, and the bomb goes off. According to the ATF guy on Forensic Files, who they didn't have people's names, they didn't have the little thing. They had some, or they'd say the name. The narrator would say the name, but I didn't get the guy's name. When a bomber uses a mercury switch, he or she has to deliver the package in person to ensure that the bomb doesn't go off before the intended target gets it because it's very sensitive. A witness who had a business on the third floor of the judge building told police that when he and his father were riding up in the elevator that morning, they saw a guy with a brown paper package. One of them noticed that the name on the package was Steve Christensen. The guy carrying it was a young, nondescript guy with glasses, brown hair, and wearing a green letterman jacket with no letter. I know what this is. For those of you who may not know, a Leatherman jacket is that kind of jacket with leather arms and a wool body. The colors depend on the school colors, but usually the arms are contrasting color. Do they get a leather when they make they, the varsity team? Yes. I can't remember why. When you successfully complete your varsity season, uh, you get your letter. And the kids buy the jackets and yes. sew the letter on them. And so what do you think this one is? Well, I don't want to say because I can't exactly remember the guy's name, but I think I just heard a podcast recently, American Scandal, about it. Uh-huh. But but I can't, off the top of my head, remember the guy's name. And if I go and say what it is, it'll give away all your yes. narrative drama. So I'll tell You're you. So generous. I, I know I am. Aren't I generous? Co- I mean, a co-host. Yeah, but I'll say if I'm right or wrong when. So the, is the letter the last name letter? No, the letter is the, the school. school. Okay. Like if you went to Coney High School in Augusta, yes, and competed in a varsity with white sleeves, right? Because the Rams were red and white. Go Rams! Mm-hmm. You would get a white C to put, yes. or a red C 
with yes. white around okay. it, whatever, to put on your jacket. I get it. And that showed that you were somehow superior yeah. to, to the other kids. You walked around in your Letterman jacket, and it, this was exclusive to guys. Girls get the letters, I think. I, it's been a long I time don't since. Know. And anyways, that was a nice a transgression. One of Steve's coworkers told police that she had seen the package in front of Steve's office that door that morning when she came to work. The police were worried that there might be more victims to come. Two hours later, their fears were realized when a bomb went off in Holiday, a city that's in the southeast area of the greater Salt Lake City metropolitan area. The victim was Kathy Sheets, the wife of Steve Christensen's former business partner, Gary Sheets. Crime investigators on the second scene found evidence that suggested the same person was responsible for both bombs. The pipes were the same type. They found a mercury switch in the same type of brown paper with the same writing and black magic marker. The batteries and some other elements in both bombs were Tandy brand, which was from Radio Shack. Mm. I used to shop at Radio Shack a lot, even up to a few years ago before they closed. Me too. They- they would always ask your name and give a written receipt. I think they stopped doing the handwritten ones, but I think they still ask your name. And some of their stores, like Sherwin-Williams, I know, does it too, where they, they ask your phone number or your name and they have you in the computer. But at Radio Shack, they'd always ask your name and write out a written receipt. So investigators knew this. They said, oh, Tandy, that's Radio Shack. Investigators checked receipts at all the Radio Shacks in the Salt Lake City area looking for customers who bought the same Tandy items found at the bomb site. And there were hundreds of Radio Shacks at that time. It was 1985. Receipts weren't computerized, so it was quite the... That used to be the place to go before the internet age. That's right. They found a receipt at the Holiday Radio Shack signed by a Mike Hansen that had mercury fuses and some of the other the batteries and stuff on it. Also, police had a witness who saw a tan minivan stop at the Sheets home the night before the bombing, like at around midnight. And it was a teenage neighbor, and the forensic files had a funny reenactment of this kid, like, like <laughs> spying through the, like, yeah. the blinds. It was stupid. Investigators were worried that there was a serial bomber on the loose. Also, was there a connection to Consolidated Financial Services, or CFS, The company Gary Sheets ran until recently with Steve Christensen. The company was failing, and the company was being investigated by the SEC, and Gary Sheets was in danger of being indicted. A lot of people had lost money, and they thought it must be a disgruntled investor who probably wanted revenge or something. The next day, though, investigators' focus shifted. Another bomb went off in downtown Salt Lake City. This time, the victim survived. Mark Hoffman told police that there was a package on the driver's seat, and when he opened his car door, the package fell on the floor and the car exploded. The tips of his right hand were blown off, his kneecap was shattered, and one of of the metal caps from the pipe bomb was embedded in his knee. Ah, jeez. He was covered with cuts, and one of his eardrums was ruptured. Who was this latest victim? He wasn't connected with CFS. Mark Hoffman was a collector of antique children's books and a rare and antique document dealer. Yes, this is the one I'm thinking of. Okay. But I misstated what podcast. It was Con Artists, not American Scandal. Oh, yeah, that makes more sense. Thanks for spoiling it. In the debris, investigators found the charred remains of old documents. Mark Hoffman and Steve Christensen did know each other. Steve Christensen was a collector of rare documents, books, and antiquities, and had bought items from Mark. Both were members of the Mormon Church, which, frankly, is probably a given in Salt Lake City. The police quickly started to focus on Mark Hoffman. First of all, the evidence belied his story. 
A pipe bomb explodes from each end. One cap of this pipe bomb shot through the passenger door of his blue sports car and the other ended up in his knee. The bomb experts told detectives that with Mark's injuries and the damage to the car, the pipe bomb must have been on the console between the two seats. They hypothesized that Mark was leaning into the driver's side, one knee on the driver's seat, and his hand was on the bomb when it went off. The evidence showed all three bombs were alike and had the same materials. Even the gunpowder was the same. Forensic Files said that the Federal ATF Laboratory has a sample of every single type of gunpowder on the market for comparison purposes. All three bombs had used the brand Hercules Bullseye. The police gave Mark a polygraph test, which he passed, quote, with flying colors. <laughs> in fact, in several of my sources, it was mentioned that even when the results were given to other experts who were not given any information about the testee, they came up with the same conclusion. The person being tested was completely truthful. Still, there was enough evidence against Mark to get a search warrant for his home and vehicles. In the Hoffman home, police found a green letterman jacket with no letter. And in the driveway was a tan minivan. In the van, they found traces of gunpowder, which turned out to be the Hercules Bullseye brand. From the search of Radio Shack receipts, a receipt turned up signed by Mike Hansen, but it had Mark Hoffman's home phone number as the contact number. They looked into the connections between Mark Hoffman and the other victims. Although he seemed to have no connection with Gary Sheets, as I said before, Mark had business dealings in the past with Steve Christensen. In fact, Mark had a meeting scheduled October 15th, the day of the first bombing with Steve and some Mormon elders about some antique Mormon documents that Mark was in the process of selling to church. Before I get into that, we need to take a little detour in order for me to put things in perspective. Oh, good. Some background is needed to put this whole story in context. Just a disclaimer before I get going to any of our listeners of the Mormon faith. I am an atheist. I'm a non-believer of every religion, and I treat every religious story with a huge dose of skepticism. So if it seems like I'm making fun of your religion, just know that I will do the same with every other faith. I apologize if it offends anyone. That isn't my intent. Put it this way. We probably offended every possible religion over our past 81 previous episodes, so there's no one left to offend. And I use the word Mormon because it's shorter than Church of of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I also use LDS. I'm going to give some very brief history about the Mormon religion to explain things, but I'm in no way giving the whole story, so no one come at me about it. If you want to read a great book about the Mormon Church, I suggest Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer, and there are tons of other books about the Mormon Church and the Latter-day Saints religion for anyone who is interested. But I'm just going to try to talk about the things just to give an overview so the other things I tell you make sense. As the story goes, and this is according to the founder, Joseph Smith Jr., in 1820, Joseph Smith of Palmyra, New York, was praying, dissatisfied with all the churches and trying to figure out which Christian denomination he should join. Jesus and God both appeared to Joseph and told him that none of the churches were right. In a series of visitations over the next few years, God told Joseph that he needed to start his own church. By the way, Joseph was a guy who did what he had to do to earn a living. One of the things he did was douse for water and do other types of folk magic using, quote, seeing stones, which were special rocks he'd find. He had a lot of schemes going on. He was always hustling. In 1823, the angel Moroni appeared to Joseph, and Moroni spelled moron with an I at the end, I just noticed, (laughs) and told him that the... (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. But Dad goes, oh, I said something about the angel Maroney. And Dad's like, oh, an Irish angel. I'm like, no, it's not spelled like that. <laughs> Friggin' Irish. They think everything's about them. <laughs> he appeared to Joseph and told him that the Book of Mormon, and Mormon apparently was Maroney's father, was the doctor needed to bring the church back. And it was written on golden plates that were buried on a hill nearby. These plates had apparently been left by ancient people who had lived in North America prior to Europeans coming over and apparently prior to indigenous Americans. Although that story doesn't really fit with actual history, but whatever. Just suspend disbelief. Few few religion origin stories do. You have to suspend disbelief. Yes. Joseph was not allowed to see the actual plates until 1827. And by plates, I mean they were rectangular sheets of gold bound together with gold rings, similar to a loose-leaf notebook. On the plates were hieroglyphics and symbols, something that came to be called Reformed Egyptian. Unfortunately, Moroni only loaned the plates to Joseph <laughs> Smith and for some reason needed them back. But luckily, Joseph had special spectacles made by seeing stones, which were called, and there are different ways of pronouncing this, but I'm going to pronounce them one of the ways, so, Urim and Thummim. And he could look into his hat with the spectacles and see, like he had visions of the plates, so he could read them. Urim and Thummim, by the way, are not something Joseph Smith made up. In the Jewish faith, they were stones that were attached to a high priest's breastplate. They were used for divination or to make important decisions, help determine someone's guilt or innocent, that kind of thing, like the magic eight ball type of thing. Hmm. Joseph Smith adopted the names and kind of the purpose and adapted it to his own use, just like he did a lot of things for this religion. He took a lot of stuff from the um, Freemasons, too. Joseph translated the plates to his friend, Martin Harris, a wealthy farmer and early convert. Martin Harris, along with David Whitmore and Oliver Cowdery, all claimed to have seen and held the real golden plates. Oliver Cowdery helped with the writing of the book, too, or the transcription of it, and Martin paid for the first 500 copies to be printed. The men did not actually see the plates. They later admitted they looked into the hat with the magic goggles and saw them after being told by Joseph Smith what they were supposed to see. And if they didn't see what he told them, then they obviously weren't praying hard enough or their faith wasn't strong enough. I'll leave the history lesson about the Mormons here for now, and I'll add what I need to as we go along with this story about Mark Hoffman. Mark Hoffman was about 30 years old in 1984, but he already had a reputation as an expert on Mormon artifacts and had been collecting and selling them for about five years. He was well-respected in the church as a devout member whose parents and grandparents had been devout Mormons as well. He was friendly with church elders, especially the de facto head of the church at the time, Gordon Hinckley. What possible reason would Mark Hoffman have to bomb people? Mm -hmm. Or was he a victim too? Mm -hmm. I got most of my information about Mark Hoffman's childhood from Simon Worrell's 2002 book, The Poet and the Murderer, although there are some details I got from other sources, too. Mark was born in 1954 to William Hoffman, who came from Germany as a baby with his German father and Swiss mother in 1928. The couple and their baby, William, went to Utah since they had converted to the Mormon church while still in Europe. William was the eighth of twelve. And at age 19, William married Lucille Sears, the youngest of 10 children. Shortly after the wedding, William left to go on his mission to Europe. As many of you know, one of the aspects of, of a young LDS church member's life is to go on a mission far away from home to proselytize and spread the word. 
When William returned to the United States, he worked as a mortician and as a sales representative for a printing company. And he worked at the church, assisting other church members in performing death rites. Mark Hoffman was a good student all through school and a good Sunday school student and member of the church. He studied the Book of Mormon and could recite long passages verbatim. The young Mark loved magic tricks and card tricks, which he would practice and perform for family and friends. He enjoyed playing cards, but his mother didn't approve. Mark would often go to his cousin's house and play with the cousin and the cousin's grandmother, who I'm assuming wasn't Mark's grandmother because the way it was written. Mark would often cheat, according to his cousin. He'd cheat even when he's playing with the grandmother because that's how he rolled. Mm. I guess. Mark also loved chemistry. Since grade school, he'd been making gunpowder from a recipe he found in the World Book Encyclopedia. That was pre-Google. He enjoyed making explosive devices from sterno cans, and he once made a homemade cannon out of a pipe and an extension cord and targeted squirrels. He liked Red flag. Off, he liked to set off firecrackers and carry cherry bombs and make bottles explode with dry ice. This wasn't really unusual back in the 1960s. Most of the toys we played with were dangerous when I was a kid, although I'm a decade younger than Mark. Um, also, guns and ammunition were, and probably still are, pretty popular in Utah. When Mark was 12, one of his experiments caused his shirt to catch fire, giving him serious burns that required skin grafts. His interest in explosives seemed to wane after that, and he turned his attention to coin collecting. Another one of Mark's interests was electroplating, which is the process of coating another type of metal or a conductive surface using electrical currents. I've never took chemistry or anything like that, so don't please don't ask <laughs> me to explain any more than that. It's basically it's fine. something with metal. When Mark was 14, he took a penny and changed the mint mark on it. Ooh. By changing a letter C to a D, he made a facsimile of a rare coin that was worth thousands of dollars right. out of a regular common penny. Just to see if he could get away with it, Mark took the penny to a coin dealer in Salt Lake City. The coin dealer sent it to the U.S. Treasury Department, who authenticated it as genuine. Mark was pretty excited about his, his success. Mm. He had business cards printed that said Mark's Mint Mistakes and told people he was a coin expert. By about this time, Mark stopped believing in God, though he didn't share his feelings with his strict parents. He went along with what was expected, but his interest in science and math and other rational thought clashed with the beliefs of the Mormon religion, and really any religion. He joked with his best friend one day on the way to school about bringing up evolution at the dinner table just to piss his father off. But Mark's subversiveness only went so far. Even though he might tease his father, he didn't let on to his family that he was a non-believer. The Mormon faith has a lot of secrecy attached to it. Their rites and rituals are kept from the public. Mark was brought up in the environment of keeping things hidden. And he knew that his parents would flip out and probably disown him if he made his true feelings known. And two, he probably just didn't have the guts to be himself and tell his parents the truth. His father was strict and overbearing, and Mark was only a teenager after all. So at age 19, he went on a mission to England. In the Mormon church, like I said before, it's expected that young men will go on a mission for two years. It's not required of women, but they can do it if they want to. If a young man doesn't go on a mission, it shows a lack of commitment to the church, and it reflects badly on his family. Mark Hoffman wasn't too thrilled to go on a mission. In fact, his girlfriend at the time, as well as some other peers, thought that he really didn't want to go at all. But it was a different country, and he was independent and on his own in a way. He did his duty walking around preaching the Book of Mormon, going door to door to preach. He didn't really believe in what he was doing, but he made the most of his time in Bristol, England. In his spare time, he visited used bookstores looking for books about religion and the occult. He left lists at secondhand stores for books he was looking for. 
He especially wanted books on Mormonism published before 1900, books on magic, and books about Freemasonry. The Mormon church doesn't like to be reminded that Joseph Smith was a Freemason, and a lot of aspects of the church are reminiscent of the Freemasons. Mark had, and I'm not going to go into what a Freemason is, Google it. Mark had an interest in both the Mormon church as well as anything having to do with it, pro or anti. One book Mark Hoffman bought while in Bristol, England in the winter of 1974 was a King James Bible published in 1688. This book would come in handy later. When Mark got back to Utah, he enrolled in Utah State University in Logan instead of Brigham Young. He probably wanted to get away from his parents after tasting some freedom on his mission. Also, with his growing agnosticism and desire to study science, he was a pre-med major, the further he grew from the religion of his family. The more he studied biology, Darwinism, physiology, the more skeptical he became of Mormonism. At some point around this time, Mark found out his mother's mother was a second wife in a plural marriage after, after the church had outlawed them. Mark was very disillusioned by this discovery. He was upset that his mother, with whom he was very close, never told him. Nothing I read said how he found out. I tried to find out that. But it was while he was in college. After hearing this, he researched everything he could about his grandparents' marriage and his grandmother's family in the archives at Utah State. He tried to talk to his parents, but they wouldn't discuss the matter with him. Although he continued to pray at the temple and act like a good Mormon, Mark started to hate the church and all it stood for. He was engaged to a fellow student at Utah State, Kate Reed, but he was violent with her twice, hitting and pushing her. In 1978, he broke up with her, telling her he no longer believed in the LDS church. The same day he broke off his engagement, he wrote his mother a long letter. There was seven pages, and I'll read it all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and started out, Dear Mom, during our Easter feast, you gave it as your opinion that certain materials in the church archives should not be made public because there exist certain faith-demoting facts that should not be known. While you may take comfort in knowing that this has been a, the traditional attitude of the leadership of the church, you have expressed anxiety because I do not share this belief. And he also said in the letter, Academia teaches the student to be critical of everything, including itself. The student is taught to accept nothing without first questioning. Mormonism, on the other hand, teaches that spiritual things are to be accepted on faith. Personal doubts and uncertainties are seen as temptations rather than as challenges to be explored and worked through. He ended the letter by saying, The truth is the most important thing. Our idea of reality should be consistent with it. With love, Mark. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with his sentiments, but also knowing what I know about his later actions, his comments in the letter seem a bit disingenuous. Yes. But anyway, he didn't send the letter. It was probably just one of those things you write out only half intending to send. Mark dropped out of college and started dating Doralee Olds. Doralee was also raised in a Mormon family. She was the middle child of five. Mark and Doralee got married in September of 1979 in the Salt Lake Temple. In the spring of 1980, Doralee came home, and Mark showed her a Bible he bought. There was a folded piece of paper between the pages. The piece of paper was glued closed with some kind of black glue. Mark and Doralee were able to see a signature on the paper, but Mark didn't want to damage it, so they didn't try to force it. But the signature Doralee saw was none other than the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints founder, Joseph Smith, Jr. The next day, Mark took the Bible with a folded paper to Jeff Simons, the curator of special collections at Utah State University. 
Mark allowed Jeff Simons to open the delicate sheet. On the page was an array of symbols that resembled Egyptian hieroglyphics. They were written vertically rather than horizontally, and in the right bottom-hand corner was a double circle decorated with symbols. Remember when I told you about how Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim Urim, Urim, <laughs> yeah, yeah. spectacles yeah. and looked into his hat to translate the golden plates? Well, this piece of paper appeared to be something that Joseph Smith had copied from what he saw on the plates and gave to his friend Martin Harris. Joseph wanted to quell any doubts his rich buddy Martin had since he was counting on some cash to help with his new religion. So he gave this piece of paper to Martin and asked him to take it to an expert and have it translated. Martin Harris took the page to Professor Charles Anthon at Columbia University, who was an expert in Greek and Latin. Whatever the professor told Martin, it was apparently enough to make him believe that this document was the real thing. Joseph Smith started telling everyone about Dr. Anthon's authentication, that it was proof that Joseph's story was true. He used the supposed stamp of approval to not only gain followers, but to get Martin Harris to bankroll the printing of the Book of Mormon. Dr. Anthon issued an affidavit saying he never authenticated anything. He said what he saw, quote, consisted of all kinds of crooked characters, Greek and Hebrew letters, inverted or placed sideways, were arranged in perpendicular columns, and the whole ended in a rude delineation of a circle divided into various compartments. People didn't pay attention to this denial, or at least not the people in Joseph Smith's thrall, and Joseph's transcript seemed to disappear. That is, until it turned up stuck between the pages of a 1688 King James Bible. The Joseph Smith version disappeared, but his friend David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses who supposedly saw the plates, made his own copy from Joseph's before it was lost. This was called the Whitmer transcript. David Whitmer wrote the symbols horizontally left to right, like the way he would have written in English. Mark Hoffman presented the Anthon transcript, as it came to be known, to Gordon Hinckley. Gordon Hinckley was second in command, but whoever was in charge was either sick or something. I can't remember now. Anyway, of course, the Mormon church wanted to own a document that would prove the legitimacy of their religion. Having it would help gain members of the church, which is already growing by leaps and bounds in the 1970s and was already one of the richest congregations in the world. At the time of this discovery, Mark even appeared in Time magazine. After the discovery of the Anthon transcript, they had a little item about it. In return for the Anthon transcript, Mark took $25,000 worth of Mormon artifacts, which included a first edition of the Book of Mormon, gold coins, and antique Mormon banknotes. More valuable to Mark was getting on the good side of Gordon Hinckley and winning the trust of church elders. Mark spent a lot of time at, LDS, at the LDS archives, signing out books, looking at rare documents, researching. Presumably, this would help him find even more treasures related to the church. And Mark found a lot more documents for the church. Here's a short list of the most notable out of over 150 he found in the first half of the 1980s. The Joseph Smith III Blessing, which was a document supposedly written by Joseph Smith Jr., the church's founder. In this document written in 1844, Joseph said that he wanted his son to be his successor. Brigham Young, according to church doctrine, was Joseph Smith's successor. So this letter contradicted what had been taught for over a century. Mark gave the Joseph Smith blessing directly to Gordon Hinckley as a gift to the church and to keep it from getting into the hands of the other branches of the faith, such as the reformed LDS who felt that Joseph III should have been the head of the church, not Brigham Young. And before he gave it to Gordon Hinckley, he like had like this bidding war, like he offered it to the um, 
reformed LDS, but then he ended up, it made him look good in Gordon Hinckley's eyes to give it to him. The Lucy Mack letter of 1829. Lucy Mack was Joseph Smith's mother. In it, she talked about stuff that was in the 116 lost pages of the Book of Mormon. And just a side note, the lost 116 pages refers to a portion of the translated book that Martin Harris took home to his wife. He was helping Joseph translate the you know, golden plates. His wife was like, what are you doing? Because he was in Pennsylvania or something. And Mm. so he brought these, apparently brought these pages to show her. She thought it was hogwash and she Mm. either destroyed them or put them somewhere, but they have never been recovered. Interesting. Back to my list, Martin Harris letter of 1873 to Walter Conrad. This letter was as dictated by Martin Harris, Joseph Smith's rich friend, to his son Martin Harris Jr., and signed by Martin Sr. The letter repeated Martin Sr.'s story that he was one of the three original witnesses to the gold plates. The David Whitmer letter of 1873 to Walter Conrad, who also reaffirmed his original story, that he was one of the three besides Joseph Smith who saw the golden book, Two pages of a transcript of the Book of Mormon written by Oliver Cowdery, as Joseph Smith dictated. The E.B. Grandin contract of 1829, which was the contract with the printer for the first printing of the Book of Mormon. And a first edition copy of the Book of Mormon signed by Joseph Smith, Jr. The White Salamander Letter. A letter written by Martin Harris to William W. Phelps in 1830, which told Joseph's story about how he got the gold plates. The story contradicted the version of the story that had been told by the church from the beginning. In this story, Maroney turned into a white salamander and prevented Joseph from getting the plates Mm. at first. And then he turned back and apparently... I think Maroney was a white salamander, and then he turned into the the angel, and he hit Joseph on the side of the head, mm. so he couldn't get the plate. The Josiah Stowell letter, written by Joseph Smith in 1825. This was one of the earliest examples of Joseph Smith's handwriting, but it was about Joseph's use of folk magic, seeing stones, and stuff that the church frowned upon, so they wanted to get it in order to... Get rid of it. Yes. I think they didn't want to actually get rid of anything, but they wanted to hide it. Right. Just like they're not to get into a whole different topic. but I saw, kill. No, I was going to say just like the same church's handling of sexual abuse yes. of parishioners where they'd have these extensive detailed files on it. Yeah. But exactly. they had them hidden. Yeah. Mark Hoffman was quite the finder of treasures. Quite. And because of the attention from the Anthon transcript, he became the top dealer of Mormon antiquities and memorabilia. In 1982, Brent Ashworth, owner of a vitamin and supplement company called Nature Sunshine Products, <laughs> called Mark and introduced himself. He was a Mormon bishop with seven kids, and he was a collector of historic documents. He became a friend and customer. In 1982, Brent Ashford donated the Lucy Mack letter to the church. It was a big deal. He bought it, I think he paid like $40,000 for Mm. it. There was even a press conference when he donated it. And he bought it from his new favorite dealer, Mark Hoffman. Mm -hmm. Rick Grunder, who was a fellow dealer in rare documents and also specialized in Mormon memorabilia, told Simon Morell in The Poet and the Murderer, quote, I called him the magic man. He was like a nondescript Richard Corey, fluttering pulses when he said good morning, glittering when he walked. Not by his appearance or by his manner. 
He didn't stand out. I never heard him raise his voice or exhibit any kind of bravado. The charisma he enjoyed was because of what we thought he had. Mm -hmm. He convinced us that he knew something we did not that he had access to things we could otherwise never hope to find. There I was, grubbing around in piles of old paper and not getting very far. Mark seemed to just wave his wand and this amazing stuff turned up. Gee! He was the Mormon Indiana Jones who could lead us to impossible treasures of information and wealth. When he granted you an audience, you felt privileged to see him. It was exciting to feel you were part of an inside group, to be on the first-name basis with a person who was constantly on the news. Mm-hmm. Mark's great finds didn't seem limited to Mormon documents. One document that was the holy grail for collectors of American memorabilia was the 1639 Oath of a Freeman, the first document printed on a printing press in what would become the United States. There had been later copies of the text of the oath printed that had been discovered, some almost as old, but the original and the plates used to print it were long gone. Mark Hoffman was a collector of first edition and rare children's books. He had a dealer in New York, Justin Schiller, who helped Mark find books to purchase. Justin said of Mark, quote, He was always very calm, so you couldn't read his excitement level. He was very likable, very charming. He was simple in the sense of not being garish. He dressed very conservatively, always with a white shirt, tie, and jacket, just like all the Mormon guys do. Like when you used to see him two by two walking around. Yep. In 1985, Mark went to, went to New York to Sotheby's to preview an upcoming auction, as he wanted to bid on a first edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin signed by Harriet Beecher Stowe. A few days later, he called Justin Schiller with a question. He asked Schiller if he'd ever heard of the book called New England's Jonas Cast Up at London, published in 1647. It was for sale at the same auction Mark was going to attend, and Mark had been perusing the catalog and noticed the description. The description in Sotheby's catalog said that the book contained the first reprint of the Freeman's Oath. Mark told Justin this caught his eye because, well, he was in New York. He'd bought some books and miscellaneous papers at Argosy Bookstore on East 59th Street, New York. One of the papers was a document that seemed pretty old, printed with a decorative border and had the title The Oath of a Freeman. Hmm. Mark was just wondering, could this document be related to the one he had just read about in the Sotheby's catalog? Hmm. A couple days after that, Mark called Justin again, saying that after doing some research at Brigham Young, he found out more information about the Oath of a Freeman, and he'd also found a copy of something called the Bay Psalm Book. And the floral border in the Book of Psalms seemed to match the document he had. The Bay Psalm Book was well known to collectors. It was the fourth document printed on the same printing press that the original Oath of a Freeman was printed on, a printing press that was smuggled to the colonies from England. After the oath was printed, two almanacs were printed, and then the Bay Psalm Book. So far, the only thing that survived from those first printed items was the Bay Psalm Book. When Justin Miller heard Mark mention the Bay Psalm Book, how many times am I going to say that? At least 17, I think so His far. ears pricked up. Mark told Justin he would bring the document with him when he came for the auction. When Mark showed Justin the document, along with a photocopy of a page from the Bay Psalm book, they looked like they'd come from the same press. There was writing on the back of the antique page that said, quote, the oath of a freeman, that looked like it had been written in the 17th century. Schiller knew he wasn't an expert in old documents, so he called Michael Zinman, who was an expert and lived upstate. Michael Zinman was excited and drove to the city to look at the document, but he didn't think it was authentic. The border didn't look right to him. Zinman told Simon Morell that Mark, quote, 
was really, was really withdrawn, but in a knowledgeable way, as though he knew what was going on. And I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? I know, really. <laughs> anyway, Michael Zinman, Justin Schiller, and Mark Hoffman went out to dinner that night. At dinner, Mark asked Michael if the oath of a freeman was authentic, what would it be worth? Michael estimated it could go for a million dollars. Jesus. Mark, Mark Hoffman didn't reveal any excitement. Michael Zinman said, quote, Hoffman never even spoke. He was opaque. I'm a reasonably acute reader of character. I can talk to people, and if I can't reach someone by talking to them, it's very uncommon. Hmm. My feeling about Hoffman was that he wasn't there. Again, hmm. what the fuck does that mean? I know. The New York Public Library had a copy of the Bay Song book on display. Before it opened the next morning, Mark and Justin Schiller met Francis Matson, the curator of rare books for the library. They compared the songbook to Mark's document. Then the three men went upstairs to look at other documents that had been printed on the same printing press as the original oath and the songbook. Francis Matson was convinced that the oath of a freeman that Mark Hoffman had brought to him was the real thing. Hmm. The next person Justin Schiller called was James Galraith at the Library of Congress, who worked in rare books and special collections. He came to New York to examine the document. He was convinced by the type itself and how it matched the other documents known from that press. The font was unique, and this seemed to match. The paper was the right age. The ink had leached into the paper the correct way. He wanted to acquire it for the Library of Congress. But first, it would need to be authenticated even more rigorously by the Conservation Office of the Library of Congress. They found the paper was right, mostly flax with some cotton. The ink seemed old, but what they really thought sealed the deal was the lettering. Since letters were set by hand at that time, you know, they put the letters in, there were idiosyncrasies to each printer's documents. The printing seemed to be from the same printer's hand. The Conservation Office's report read, quote, No evidence has been revealed that would contravene a mid-17th century date for broadside. The oath of a freeman also passed a carbon-14 dating test later at the University of California, Davis. Justin Schiller, acting as Mark's agent, told the Library of Congress that they, would ha they could have the document for $1.5 million. But he warned them that they only had a month to decide, and this was in June, or they, the document would be shopped around to the private sector for $3 million. So fast forward to October of 1985, seven months later. If you recall, Mark was a suspect in the bombing deaths of two people. Police were searching his home. They found an envelope from an engraving company addressed to Mike Hansen. The police, led by detectives Ken Farnsworth and Jim Bell, visited Salt Lake City's engraving and print shop. They found many orders from Mike Hansen for Mormon historical documents, as well as an engraving plate with Jack London's signature. Huh. The police also found a negative for a plate for the oath of a freeman. During this part of the investigation, George Throckmorton, a forensic document examiner, joined. He was also from Salt Lake City and worked for the Salt Lake Attorney General's office. Because George Throckmorton was a member of the LDS Church and from Salt Lake City, the police wanted to make sure his examinations were impartial, so they also added Bill Flynn at George's request, a forensic documents examiner from Arizona, to the team. The two men began an examination of every document Mark had sold the church. They found, as others had before, that the ink was chemically correct, the paper seemed the correct age. Everything seemed genuine. Like a lot of document forges, Mark would cut blank pages out of old books or find other sources of old paper to create documents. He made his own iron galatanic ink using a recipe he found in an old book. 
The reason Mark Hoffman's forgeries went undetected for so long was the fact that he used the correct materials, but also he did the research necessary to authenticate the forgeries. For instance, for one of the fake letters, he researched not only the price of a letter from somewhere in Pennsylvania to Palmyra, New York, but what days the mail was delivered and what day that date was and everything. He convinced a woman that he had purchased the Bible with the Anthon transcript in it from the woman's mother who owned an antique store. He convinced the guy at Argosy Bookstore that he bought the papers from him that contained the oath of a freeman. When questions came up, Mark would blame the seller he got the item from. He would ask whoever was questioning it, well, what seems wrong about this? And then he would kind of take note of that, and then next time he would perfect Clever. Yeah. So what would lead him to murder? Well, Mark liked to spend money. He lived lavishly. He was in debt and was counting on the sale of the Oath of a Freeman to get him out of it. Mark's reasons for forging Mormon documents were only so he could make money. His other reason was to passive-aggressively hurt the church. All of the documents he forged chipped away at the foundation of the church of its origin story. In 1985, he told church elders that he was in the process of obtaining the McClellan Papers. William McClellan was one of Joseph Smith's 12 apostles. He started having doubts about the church and Joseph Smith's character after having witnessed what a perv Smith was. William McClellan was excommunicated from the Mormon church in 1838, and a campaign to ruin his character was launched. He was accused of robbing Joseph Smith's home and assaulting him, among other things. And it's funny that after watching that Scientology show with Leah Remini. That's what the Scientologists do, too. When you, They don't just cast you out. They try to ruin your character, because then if you say anything bad about... William McClellan had a journal and a diary, documents and letters and stuff like that from his time at the church. A lot of it could have been damaging to Joseph Smith and the Mormons. When he died, he passed the papers on to a Texan named J.L. Trogger. In 1901, an anti-Mormon attorney tried to buy some of the collection, but Trogger didn't want to sell it unless he sold the whole kit and caboodle. Apparently the lawyer never bought it and no one knew what happened to the papers. Until 1985 when rumors of the papers being found started going around Salt Lake City. St- probably started by Mark Hoffman. Mark knew the church would love to have these materials in order to suppress them. Like we were just talking about. Kind of like the catch and kill idea too. Yes. You know? And he also knew that they wouldn't be to put them through too much of rigorous testing because to test them, you have to either cut a piece from them, you have to do something that might damage them, and they were church relic. He knew that they weren't going to do too much. They would kind of go by faith and look at them, and if they looked old and seemed old, then they would pay for them. He told Steve Christensen about the papers and told him one of the documents was one of the most famous relics of Mormondom, as the Salt Lake Tribune called it, a copy of one of the papyri Joseph Smith found that had writing on it. So apparently Joseph Smith found some papyrus sheets that had the hieroglyphics on it. But they all somehow disappeared. He made, like, paper copies of them. He wrote, the, but they, the actual papyrus uh, pieces of papyrus were long gone. Salt Lake City dealer Bob Campbell told the Deseret News later, Looking back now, it seems obvious, but they so much wanted to believe, so many people. Mark told Steve that he had put $10,000 down for the McClellan papers and needed 185000 more to secure the sale. But the option was going to run out pretty soon. 
Steve Christensen got his friend, Hugh Pinnock, a church elder and a banking guy, to give Mark an unsecured loan for the documents. Ten days later, Mark told Steve and Hugh that the papers were in a safe deposit box in Salt Lake City. At the same time, Mark was also soliciting money from some business guy. It was like a group of investors. Some of them were from Las Vegas. They were not church members, Mm. and they were not as forgiving. The days turned into weeks, and Mark didn't give them the documents or pay back the money. Also, he ghosted them. He didn't answer calls and was never around. Hugh Pinnock was worried because it would look really bad if word got out that the elders of the church had arranged an unsecured loan to buy potentially damaging documents. Hugh told a colleague in August of 1985, quote, It looks like I'm in trouble. Steve Christensen was getting suspicious. He had been asking around and found that Mark had been unreliable and sketchy lately. And why was he putting them off like this? He gave Mark a deadline of September 3rd to come up with the money or the documents. On September 3rd, Mark wrote a personal check for $185,000 plus interest. The next week, the check bounced. Mark was building a Ponzi-like scheme. He solicited investors to help him buy and sell documents and books. And then he was giving them like 28% interest and stuff back. He was making forgeries, but not enough. He was living beyond his means, traveling and buying an expensive home. One of the forgeries he wanted to produce was the 116 lost pages of the Book of Mormon, but he just didn't have time. He thought the Library of Congress was going to buy the oath of a Freeman for the $1.5 million, but he should have known that the wheels of government moved slowly and Congress would have to approve the purchase, and they didn't want to spend the money. By October, he was cornered. Steve Christensen insisted on a meeting to get to the bottom of things. The other investors wanted money, too, and these guys were not a group of Mormon elders, but like I said, Salt Lake City businessmen and guys from Las Vegas. Mark was to meet Steve Christensen and give him the money he owed the day after Columbus Day, and he was supposed to start paying the other guys $4,000 per day starting that same day, which was Tuesday, October 15, 1985. Mark realized also that Kenneth Rendell, an autograph expert, was coming to Salt Lake City in late October. Ken was going to authenticate a piece of papyrus that Mark had told Stephen Christensen was part of the McLellan collection. But unfortunately, Mark had bought the papyrus from Rendell that summer, and it had nothing to do with the McClellan collection. So his worlds were about to collide, and the same person that was going to authenticate it was going to be like, um, no, that was mine. (laughs) But Mark had a plan. Of course he he did. He had the anarchist cookbook and a couple of books about bomb-making he bought at a gun show. He made some pipe bombs, and during the Columbus Day weekend, he drove out to the desert and tested them. Once he perfected what he needed, he drove home. He spent Columbus Day with his family, eating pizza, renting movies, visiting friends. And then after his family was in bed, he went down to the basement and prepared three more bombs. One thing he did when he made the bombs was drill a small hole in the box that contained the pipe bomb with the two wires sticking out. And I'm not going to get very technical. Um, The last thing he had to do to arm the bomb was to twist the wires together and stick them back in the box. And not jostle the box at all after that, because, as I said... The mercury switch. When Steve Christensen was found, he had a hole blown in his chest, a wound in his right thigh, and his foot was almost blown off. Oh. The masonry nails had penetrated his skin all over his body, and one nail had shot into Steve's eye and into his brain. Ah, oh, jeez. I'm sorry. He no, was that's only right. 31 and left behind four kids. And I don't want to be too graphic, but I do want people to know that these were horrible crimes. You know, be graphic, be graphic. A couple hours later was when Kathy Sheets was killed. 
She came home from shopping and picked up a package she found on the, in the driveway. Her neighbor at first thought it was some kind of Halloween prank when she saw Kathy. I don't know if people heard the bomb. I don't know how loud they are, but judging by how loud some people are and other... I think it all depends on where you are and what you're doing. Say you yes. have your air conditioner on or whatever. Well, that's true. You know, yeah. I mean... Yeah. Um, Kathy's face was undamaged, but what the neighbor thought at first was candle wax all over the front of her body turned out to be fatty tissue from her chest and stomach. Ah! Kathy's daughter appeared on Forensic Files saying how horrific it is to lose someone so violently right on your front steps where you expect to be safe. Mark's injuries were pretty bad, too, but he lived. And Salt Lake City Detective Ken Farnsworth, along with his partner Jim Bell, were suspicious of Mark almost from the beginning. Even at the scene of the bomb, they found galvanized pipe, the same as the one from the bombs, and it was in his car trunk, along with all the charred paper and papyrus sheets. According to the L.A. Times, the day of the bombings, Gary Sheets had held up a piece of paper with all his investors and said, here are your suspects. A lot of people did not think that Mark was a suspect at first, but <laughs> the two detectives did. I think that the um, the bomb experts did, too, because his story did not match the evidence. I think that people who are ingrained all their life to believe some really crazy things and I'm not saying the Mormon church is any crazier than the one we were raised in, the Catholic church or anything, are more willing to believe yeah. other crazy. Just like when we were talking about abducting in plain sight. Yes. And they wanted um, to believe him, you know. This case was so complicated that it was the first time ever the district attorney's office used a computer to keep track of a case. Oh, wow, good for them. I don't think 1985 is that long, or at least we don't. But No. The DA's office, the FBI, and other cops in the department didn't believe Mark could have done it. One prosecutor walked out of a meeting pissed off that the cops were focused on Mark. As Why didn't they believe he, because he was mild-mannered? They were convinced it had something to do with a uh, consolidated financial uh, service. See, that's what happens when they get an idea in their head instead of following the evidence. Ken Farnsworth told the Deseret News in 2005, quote, We made this thermometer, much like the one of those charity benefit thermometers, to show the mercury rising as the money adds up for how much money Mark had owed pe- mm. different people. Because it was very complex. George Throckmorton, the forensic document examiner, came into the picture because of all the documents in Mark's explosion. Because Jim Bell and Ken Farnsworth were suspicious of Mark, they needed to know what these documents, what they were. Someone from the church had contacted them already and told them about the McClellan paper transaction that was supposed to take place. So somebody at the church was smart enough to figure out, gee, Steve Christensen was supposed to meet with Mark, and he's blown up, and then Mark gets blown up. So maybe, you know, someone from the church actually wondered if there was Mm. something to do with it. George Throckmorton and Bill Flynn knew there had to be some way to prove Mark's documents were fake. There had to be something. George knew that there was never a way to prove 100% something was authentic, but you could prove it was not. George Throckmorton noticed under a microscope the ink on Mark's documents had a cracked look to it, as if it hadn't dried slowly and soaked into the paper. George had Bill Flynn hand him a document without telling him if it was a Hoffman document or not. As he examined each one, he sorted them from alligator ink, as he called it, and not. All the cracked ones were Mark's, and even ones that he didn't realize were Mark's at first, and he Mm. put on that pile. He said, oh, this isn't one of the ones that Mark sold them. Well, it turned out when they tracked back where it it came from somebody else, Uh. but that person got them from Mark. 
Good. He couldn't figure out what was causing this, and until he did, he couldn't prove the documents were forgeries. He had used iron gall ink, just as Mark had, and sprayed the documents with sodium hydroxide or ammonia, as Mark had done to age the ink. Then he looked at his ink recipe again. It turned out Mark had added gum arabic to his ink, and George hadn't added that. The ink recipe, is a, it was an old recipe, but a little bit different. When George used Mark recipes, voila, the ink cracked. There was also a discrepancy in the oath of a freeman that George Throckmorton recognized as being from the Frodo printing process, something that other experts had missed. And it was some kind of like, um, they had a forensic files, it was some kind of line or something in one of the letters that was repeated, and apparently none of the other experts had noticed it. And Throckmorton and Flynn noticed that under an ultraviolet light, some of the Hoffman documents had a blue tint. Under a microscope, the ink ran in one direction rather than spreading out on all sides, which it would normally do as you were writing with a quill pen or printing. But most of those were, most of the documents were written with quill pens. Right. It turned out that Mark sprayed ammonia on the documents, as I said, or sodium hydroxide. He also ironed them with an iron or put them in an aquarium with a transformer for a toy train. When the transformer was turned on, it created ozone, which aged the ink. Wow. The ink ran in one direction because Mark would often hang the documents to dry, so there was like a slight direction to the ink. Mm. I know they really, um, Throckmorton is pretty high on himself. Well, also, and you have to give Mark credit for ingenuity, yes, too. He was quite an ingenuity. Yes, he was quite a resourceful man. Mm-hmm. Steve Christensen's death hadn't even delayed the meeting with Mormon officials more than a day. Someone else from the church contacted Mark to set up a meeting on October 16th, which was the day Mark blew himself up. But Mm -hmm. it was like this afternoon that Steve had died. Someone's like, okay, we'll meet tomorrow. So they were not giving up. Most of Mark's friends and business acquaintances could not believe he'd do anything like forging. They said that when he got out of the hospital in November, he'd produce the McClellan papers and prove everyone wrong. His friend, Lynn Jacobs, who arranged the sale of the Salamander letter to the church, said, mm. I have no reason to doubt the collection exists as Mark has described it. Mark Hoffman is not a forger. I don't think he even knows how. I have never heard a negative statement concerning Mark's integrity from an archivist or a professional. If he were a forger, how could he have gone so long without a single slip? The L.A. Times reported in 1987 that the Salt Lake Tribune had tracked down the family that owned the McClellan Collection in Texas. They allowed the reporter to read the documents, and none were as Mark described them. And they had the family had no intention of ever selling them, nor had they ever spoken with Mark Hoffman. Mark played the long game. He didn't just have a single forgery. He would forge little things first, and then those items would be used later to authenticate bigger, a bigger mm. document. For instance, he took an authentic first edition Book of Mormon and forged Joseph Smith's signature. That way, later, the Anthon transcript with Joseph Smith's signature would be compared against that Bible. In February of 1986, Mark Hoffman was charged with the murders of Stephen Christensen and Kathy Sheets and with 28 counts of fraud. Mark's attorneys wanted to discuss a plea agreement so he could avoid the death penalty. Mark's father told him not to take the plea agreement. The Mormon church believed in blood atonement, meaning some crimes can only be repaid with the blood of the sinner. Mark's dad was worried that if Mark took a deal, he'd go to hell. I think he's already on his way there, if it were to exist. I know. But the church had renounced blood atonement in the 1960s, so the attorneys were able to convince Mark's dad that it was okay for Mark not to be executed. 
Mark pled guilty in January 1987 and was sentenced to four concurrent terms of five years to life in prison. The judge recommended he never get out. He was sent to Utah State Prison, a maximum security prison in Draper, Utah. And fun fact. Do you like fun facts? I love them because they're fun. Mark's cellmate was Dan Lafferty, whose case was featured in the aforementioned Under the Banner of Heaven. Oh, yeah. Thought that name sounded familiar. That was a really good book. It was. I like all John Krakauer's books. I do, too. Mark agreed to answer all the questions prosecutors had about his crimes as part of his plea bargain. He said the last bomb was a suicide attempt. I call bullshit. Yeah, we'll talk about it later, our theories. Although later he told a cellmate, I don't I don't know if that was Dan Lafferty, that it was meant for someone who owed him $30,000. And that day he was supposed to meet with Brent Ashworth, who owed him that amount, and is convinced that he is the third victim. Brent Ashworth lost his retirement fund, about $400,000, because of Mark Hoffman. Mm. Brent Ashworth used to have a much more extensive collection of items, including an original copy of the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which is the amendment that ended slavery, for those of you who are not American. Like every American is going to know the 13th well, Amendment. You know, I was giving people the benefit of a d- d- <laughs> doubt, especially yeah. our listeners who are extremely intelligent. That's true, and they well are. Read. That's true. Um, a letter handwritten by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. And these were authentic items. He traded these documents to Mark for antique Mormon papers, which were fake. Brent was always amazed at Mark's ability to find the items Brent really wanted, like the Lucy Mack letter or a letter Joseph Smith wrote while in the Carthage, Illinois jail right before he was dragged out and killed. When a reporter for the Deseret News started a question to Brent with, I don't understand, Brent finished, how stupid we were. Brent said, Collecting is insanity. My wife calls it greed. It might be greed. I've tried to analyze it myself, but I'm not very good at that. I don't remember ever being suspicious, but one time. This was the time that Brent stopped by Mark's house one day when Mark was leaving. Mark was holding a document that was signed by Paul Revere. Quote, doggone it if that ink didn't look not quite dry. It looked Hmm. almost brand new. Oh, jeez. But Brent just let it go and eventually forgot about it until after Mark's checks started bouncing and he kept breaking promises and dodging phone calls. Still, even though Brent thought Mark was a bit of a liar and a con man, he never thought he was a forger. Brent Ashworth told the Deseret News, quote, He told police that if his wife needed $20 worth of groceries, he'd do a $20 forgery. It's ridiculous he took that kind of risk. But I can see why. At the end, we were buying whole collections that didn't exist. So my theory is that Mark wanted to stage a suicide and walk away. Make it look like he was the third victim and he was going to take off. Or, as one of the prosecutors thought, that he was going to just let his car explode and make it look like he was a victim and that the McClellan papers were in the car. I agree that could be what his plan was, but he would still owe the money. Right. Like, he wouldn't get out of that, but he wasn't thinking straight. But anyways, he accidentally moved the package when he armed the bomb, so he ended up getting blown up. Or maybe he just had someone else on his list he wanted to blow up. That could be. I know we say this a lot about our subjects, but he's a narcissist. He mm-hmm. could have made a lot more money by forging innocuous Mormon documents and other stuff that would have flown under the radar, but instead he forged major documents that demanded attention. Not only Mormon stuff, but he forged an Emily Dickinson poem that fooled oh. a ton of experts that he composed himself. Wow. He forged a letter from Daniel Boone. 
He forged so <laughs> many things, and they were big things, like these things with Nathan Hale. The oath of a freeman was something that surely would gain attention. And the Mormon stuff he forged was not only big, he was trying to re- rewrite the church's history, as yes. well as make them squirm with stuff that was controversial and contrary to the church's right. teachings. Because he so liked fucking around with yeah, them. So yeah. it wasn't just about money for Mark Hoff. In 1988, he wrote a letter to the Utah Board of pardons and parole but it wasn't released until like 2011 he wrote quote as far back as i can remember i've liked to impress people through my deceptions fooling people gave me a sense of power and superiority i believe this is what led to my forging activities mark once told a prison guard he'd befriended charles larson who later wrote a book numismatic forgery was the title of the book mark said if i can produce something so correctly so perfect that the experts declare it genuine then for all practical purposes it is genuine that's quite a rationalization he also wrote in this letter to the parole board the most important thing in my mind was to keep from being exposed as a fraud in front of my friends and family when i say this was the most important thing i mean literally i felt i would rather take a human life or even my own life rather than be exposed at his parole hearing in 1988 mark didn't express any remorse and told the parole board that Quote, he had a parole hearing in 1988? Yeah, I know. I know. Because he was sentenced to four concurrent... I know. I don't understand why either. And told the parole board that toying with religion was experimentation to see why they believe what they do. Mark's former friend, Shannon Flynn, told the Deseret News, he has little or no conscience. He doesn't think about things in moral terms like punishment by God. He believes in a sense we just live in a biological system. He killed those people to survive, to get out of it. Things were closing in on him. His forgeries were very close to being found out. That's, this is what makes Hoffman so stinking dangerous. You and I would have just gotten caught for forgery and gone to prison for three years. But Hoffman has no limit. Would he kill again? If the pressure was high enough, you'd better believe it. Mark said, the Steve Christensen bomb was to take the pressure off the two fraud schemes I was involved in. Hmm. The Gary Sheets bomb was pure diversion. I spent the rest of the day driving around in a daze. At the time I made that bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mr. Sheets, a child, a dog. Ugh. I know. In the 1988 letter, he also said that he, quote, learned to live with the inherent stress, guilt, and fears through rationalization and hypnosis. And in several sources I found, he said that he used self-hypnosis when he forged documents to keep his hands sure and steady, and before a meeting with someone, he was going to fool. And it probably helped him pass that lie detector test. As for his ex-wife, Dora Lee, she is now a life coach and hypnotherapist. She divorced him in, uh, or filed for divorce in 1988. He tried to commit suicide, and he tried to commit suicide again for some other reason, whatever. I read an article about her in the Salt Lake Tribune from five years ago. She said she was shunned by the Mormon church and her Mormon friends after the trial. She had to give up her house. She sent the four kids to relatives because she believed they didn't respect her anymore. Mm. She was a nutrition major at Utah State and lived in the apartment above Mark Hoffman. When he broke up with his fiancée, Dora Lee and Mark got together. Dora Lee told the Tribune, I didn't feel loved, but I did think he would be my savior. He would save me from my family. Her sister asked her, Why do you want to marry him? He's mean. Mm. She quit school to support Mark. The day she came home and he showed her the Bible he bought, it was unusual. He had never done that before. Quote, he set me up. I was the witness and entangled in it. 
I felt something was off, but I didn't know what it was. According to friends of Mark's, Doralee didn't seem that interested in Mark's work and doubted she knew of the forgery since she didn't even care much about his collecting stuff. Doralee told the Tribune, I was asleep all those years. If I had awakened earlier, I might have ended up dead. The day of the killings of Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets, Mark was up and about before Doralee in the house acting normal. So she was truthful when she told police he was there. The next day, Mark called her and told her that she was in danger and to take the kids to her mother's house. While there, she heard about his car blowing up. While she was at the hospital, she looked at the TV screen and saw the police going through, quote, my messy house. So the police were on to him like that yeah. day. To me, that's almost like a movie scene. Or, you know, you're in the right. hospital and you look up. It took her a while to believe Mark had set off the bombs. She believed the forgery, but she couldn't bring herself to believe that. It took her years, but she, she finally does believe it. And she's mm. still a Mormon and says the church has now embraced her. Oh, that's which nice. Is nice. Yeah, it's unknown how many Mark Hoffman forgeries are still in circulation. For a while, any documents, especially Mormon antiquities that had ever passed through Mark Hoffman's hands were taboo. But as the years have passed, people are more lax. A lot of auction places don't try too hard to make sure the provenance on a particular item is accurate. Jennifer Larson is a book dealer from Rochester, New York, and she told the Deseret News that there are many Hoffman forgeries floating around. Quote, I know fairly surely several dozen. Not many people are interested in the non-Mormon forgeries that may be unidentified and unlocated. And even fewer are interested in the wider problems of authentication that Hoffman's success should have exposed. If anything, I think the problem is now worse than it was in the 1980s. The Internet now offers easy, efficient method of offering questionable merchandise to a very wide audience. While many buyers might be suspicious, all a forger or thief needs is to find one. George Throckmorton bristled at the idea of how many forgeries are still being sold. He complained about it on the Forensic Files episode, which was in 1997, and in many of my other sources, he complains constantly. He often let auction houses know if something was a forgery that he himself had caught, but they didn't care. He told the Deseret News that one dealer told him, quote, we don't care. We never guarantee it's authentic. We just guarantee we'll give them their money back if they're not satisfied. And George Throckmorton also said that, I think it was on the Forensic Files, he said every single document of Mark Hoff, that Mark Hoffman had sold the church that I tried to authenticate was fake. Every mm. single one. Uh, which I believe. Ken Sanders, owner of Ken Sanders' Rare Books in Salt Lake City, almost bought a fake calling card supposedly handwritten by Brigham Young in the late 1990s, until he realized he'd seen it at a symposium about Hoffman forgeries. Sanders told the Deseret News, I think as the years went by, his arrogance went through the roof, his sense of omnipotence, mm. that he could fool anyone, anytime. Mark even ordered printing negatives for forgeries at a print shop next door to one of his document dealers. That's how arrogant he was. The Southwestern Association of Forensic Document Examiners voted in the early 2000s that Mark Hoffman was the best forger in the last 12 oh, years. For George Throckmorton also thought so, pointing out, quote, he had his documents authenticated by the best. The Library of Congress, the American Antiquarian Society, the FBI, the University of California, the McCrone Research Institute. And what he's not saying is, but I'm the one that caught him. Yes, he deserves kudos for catching him. But at the same time, it kind of stokes his ego that, right. oh, this best forger of all time. 
But Jennifer Larson, the Rochester book dealer, said there are better forgers out there as far as materials and technique. What Mark Hoffman may have been the best at was, quote, an ability to select and exploit his victims with a Mm -hmm. heartless eye towards their particular weaknesses and a total indifference to the damage he was doing to them. Yes. And to trust among human beings in general. I think this is a psychiatric characteristic that he can't help and merits no accolade. In September 2016, Mark was moved from maximum security at Utah State Prison in Draper to a minimum security prison in Gunnison, Utah. Kathy Sheets' daughter, Gretchen Sheets McNeese, was a detective with the Salt Lake City Police oh. Department as of 2005 when the article in the Deseret News was published. She said, I think they've kind of idolized him and given him a unique status I don't think he deserves. Yes, he did these forgeries, but he also killed two people and didn't care who he killed. Mm-hmm. So that is the end of my... That was good. That was good. Did you like it? He, and I know we say this about everybody, but he <laughs> was a friggin' narcissist. Yes. He, he could have made a lot more money and not gotten caught if he had just forged little right. stuff and stuff like innocuous things. But no, he wanted to fool everybody. Right. And he wanted to be the discoverer of all these great things. And I can't believe that nobody was suspicious. Although there probably were some people who were. Yes. They just didn't say anything. Right. Well, but like that one guy said, people wanted to believe. They wanted like, to believe. They, just yeah. like Clark Rockefeller when you did yes. that one and everything. And the French Rockefeller people. Guy. It's the way I look at it. It's. Uh, several things it's because the lds church is so new it's easier to forge documents that are you know less than 200 years old than it is say Mm -hmm. if you wanted to forge ancient catholic documents from the 13th century or something And, and that also made him easier to believe because the religion was so new, stuff is going to turn up in somebody's basement in New York or True. something. But also at the same time, the fact that it is only, it's only, it's less than 200 years old. You think yeah. there would be more, there would be more extant documents around. That, and right. But also Joseph Smith was um, almost illiterate. Right. And uh, didn't write a lot. So. Right. But there were other people who were more literate than him also involved. But the other thing is, it's like I said earlier, and it's like when when we were talking, for instance, about that documentary, Abducted in Plain Sight, when you are conditioned to believe things that you have to believe just on faith, and they may sound crazy, you know, like a salamander turning into a saint and stuff. I'm not mocking this church because there are things in other religions that are just as crazy, including Catholicism, Mm. which we were raised in, but... It's easier to believe other things. You're not as cynical. If you're religious and involved in the church, you are not a cynical person. Because as we know, you know, from the way the nuns treated us and stuff, churches don't want cynical people around. They don't want questioning. No, they don't want you to be critical. So he wasn't dealing with cynical people. Obviously, he knew like a good con man and psychopath. He knew how to pick his marks. He knew how to manipulate people. He knew how to act like a nice guy. Yes. To get what he wanted. And people wanted to believe. And also, like, I've heard from that other podcast I listened to, somebody said, well, just imagine what he could have done if he had used his talents for... <laughs> but, and, but I'm like, he doesn't he don't want to use his talents no. for something honest. He liked... 
he even he said. liked to manipulate. And it's just like that, you know what? It's like with the, with the Clark Rockefeller guy. He never came out and said anything. He let other what? people, like with that whole thing about the oath of a freeman. He didn't say, oh, I found this oath of a freeman. Right. And, you know, he acts very naive and, right. and lets the other people come to the conclusion of what it is. Right. And just, he would just be quiet and watch them and allow them to say it. Right. And that makes it more believable. In a, and, and that's what the best con people do. Right, right. I mean, they let the, they let the victim. I, I thought it was interesting how that one, that Ashcroft guy or whatever his name was, said that his wife calls it greed. And how that French Rockefeller guy said, well, people are greedy. And they, you know, and it is. It's like you have this desire. If someone's fulfilling what you, you know, right. you want. Right. Even if it's, you know, you know, collecting artifacts isn't a bad thing right the thing is if he hadn't gotten himself into such a mess but he was bound to there was no way he wasn't gonna he was just cruising for it and it doesn't surprise me that he killed people because they were like other people said on the thing they were just things to him the way yeah. these artifacts were things that it just tools for. Well, he his, even said it yeah. like that, like that second bomb. He was like, I, it didn't matter who it, right. it didn't matter who it blew up. I didn't care. But no, that was good. So I thought that was interesting. I'm always as I'm, I think you are too intrigued by con people yes. or people that live a double life. And even when it's sometimes they make it into a lighthearted thing, but there's always a sociopathic element to right. you, like someone like Bernie Madoff too, looking right someone in the face when you are lying to them and taking their life savings away and acting like they're your friend or acting yeah. like you're you're or, or you're acting like you're a doctor or you're right. somebody that you're not there's something very sinister to me about that yes that even if it's not supposedly not trying to hurt somebody it's just ugh, well it's creepy you know the whole not trying to hurt somebody phrase is just a moot one. It's not that they're yeah. trying. They don't care whether they hurt yeah, people or not. True. What they do obviously is going to hurt people, but it doesn't matter. And that's kind of what makes them a psychopath. And like yeah. someone like Bernie Ma- it's not just about money with someone like no. Bernie Madoff. It's about they get off on, you know, playing God or whatever, you know. Ugh, as far powerful. as Bernie Madoff and the Ashcroft guy in this or whichever one losses you know, retirement savings. If you have your retirement savings and something that's going along and it's going well and it's a good traditional conservative thing, just fucking keep it in there. Don't go with some, you know, fucking... You know what I remembered while I I just came to me while I was writing this when Dad Dad brought home that, that picture that... He signed it from Southside Johnny, but you thought it was real, and then he felt bad because he thought you'd know it was I a totally joke. forgot about that. <laughs> I did, too. And now I'm... <laughs> I'm sorry. Did wow. that bring up... Did that trauma. Bring up some... Anyways, you are going to do a negative Nellie's. I am. <laughs> But before, I just want to update my Charles Todd Ian Rutledge series. I am now okay, yeah. 17 books in. I'm taking more points oh, away. Oh, my fucking God. I don't think it's any different from binging a TV series or being addicted to oh. a drug okay. or a food. And anyway, I can't remember what my score <laughs> you was. 
You don't need to justify. Well, you're always, you're always so appalled by it, but I'm taking more points away. I can't remember what my score was okay. because the writing, uh, I won't go into a lot of them because people probably just don't want to hear it, but it's like just you walk into a room oh. in a vacant house and you think there may be somebody somewhere in that house who's trying to kill you and you're skulking around, but yet you notice the color of the wallpaper and the draperies <laughs> and the era of the furniture stuff like that there's more so to... jealous yes that's what it is jealousy no but there are just bad the books could be better if they were but anyway that's not what i'm doing my nnw on okay my nnw is on a series on hulu a true crime series called blood runs cold hmm. the premise is that they are cold cases and I realized a few episodes in that they're all cold cases where uh, somebody in the family had to push the cops to solve mm-hmm. the case. Like, there's family involvement. Becky, and I will need your help on the list of things. Okay, just you think we know I have to I write mean. it down. So, bad reenactments. I was of two minds on this. Whether to take away a point, more than a point, or not. The entire show almost is reenactments. They talk to people now who are involved, but they pretty much act out, not fictionalized, but it's like a rendition of what happened. I give them points for trying to make the people in the reenactments look and sound like the real people, but it's like there's this wicked overacting, like in one, the sister of the victim is now in her, like, maybe probably my age, in her 50s or something, and she's kind of mannish and has like glasses and is overweight and so they have this overweight woman with glasses playing her but like the way she emotes and stuff is just way over the top it's kind of funny in a way but it's also it's like that one they have the about people's obsessions or something right right <laughs> which i wouldn't watch because i'm not interested in anyone's obsessions but my own except for well it's my... about stalking it's people oh, that stalk oh, people. oh yeah but, um, but then it's also things like, you know, lots of times the cops look like they're rent-a-cops. You know, there was one, like in the first episode, the guy looked like he had bedhead or hat hair, you know, and they're wearing, like, u- uniforms that don't fit, and they have, like, five o'clock shadow and long hair, and, you know. Uh, I'm going to take away a point because... The show is mostly reenactment. They do try Ooh. to make them. They do try to make them look like the people, but the acting is way over the top, and they're very cheesy. It's entertaining, but I just can't give them points for it. Narrative cliches. Yeah, I'm gonna have to take away a point because, and this, I guess, this could also fall under obtuseness. But I'm going to put it under narrative cliches. It's the, it goes with the reenactments. All, like, the the drunks and the criminals and the bad people are all like, like acting. <laughs> like, nobody's just like a normal person. It's uh, it's almost cartoonish the way the, the people behave and act. And they, the dialogue, they speak in cliches. And so I'm taking away a point for that. Ooh, two for two. Okay. Racial gender stereotypes. I am taking away half a point because they are in some ways sensitive to 
in that, like, I think it was the second episode, there was um, a Latina mother and a black mother, and their two sons had gone bike riding down by the river, like in L.A. or wherever, and the kids disappeared. They did a good job. The show did a good job without, I don't know, being, even with the reenactments, without being too over the top or making, doing racial cliches. That said, I'm taking away half a point because in the reenactments where it doesn't matter what somebody's race is, there are very few, if any, people of color. For instance, I think it was the first episode takes place in Tucson, and every single person's white. And I'm like, are there no black people in Tucson? So I'm taking away half a point. All right. The next one is lack of good visuals. I'm taking away a point because, well, they do talk to, you know, the cops and people involved, and particularly the family members who are pushing the police. They have very few, if any, actual photos or video from the time the the crime happened childhood photos and stuff like that they occasionally do but much less than they should like i think it was the first one they had a a picture of the mother and daughter and there was a real one but then there was one of the reenactors too and they kept showing the one of the reenactors And, like, the mother had made a billboard or paid for a billboard, and they had a fake one instead of having a picture of the real billboard. So I'm taking away a point for that. Hmm. Okay. Missing pieces? I'm taking away a point. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are missing pieces. And granted, these are cold cases that happened a long time ago, but there's stuff you just fucking want to know. That is never explained, that doesn't make sense, and they make these leaps. And when I watched last night, the girl was 13 and her mother disappeared. And it could have either been her father, the parents, I don't think they were divorced, but they were they were separated. And the father was a drunk, of course a cliche drunk who's banging at the door. And it was kind of funny because the girl said the the father would like to grab the mother by the hair. So she would put on a wig so that when he gripped the hair, she could get away. <laughs> so it shows him, like, banging drunkenly on the door, and she hastily, like, puts this wig on before she answers the door. And he reaches in and grabs the hair and comes away with the wig, and then she slams the door. And I'm like, why did she even open the door? And I was kind of, but anyway, her mother had a boyfriend who was married, whose wife apparently knew and quote-unquote was okay about the affair, and her mother got pregnant. And then her mother disappeared. And for some reason, everybody was okay with the 13-year-old girl going to live with the boyfriend and his wife, despite the fact that the mother had disappeared and it could very easily be a homicide, although they treated it as, it was 1979, so they treated it as a missing person. Well, the cops were, in fact... When the cops went to interview her, and this is an example of a missing piece, it shows her sitting on the, the this chair or bench on the front porch, and the mom's boyfriend like has his hand on her shoulder, and the boyfriend's wife is right there, and the cops interviewing her. Now I don't know if it really happened like that, but she wouldn't talk to the cops. Like she just gave monosyllable answers and stuff. 
And the cop today, the real cop, is like, well, I guess, you know, it was her mom's boyfriend, so she felt some kind of loyalty to him. And I'm like, these people killed her mother, and she's not saying anything because they're fucking standing right there, you stupid fat fuck. You know, and this is him, the guy like in like 2018 or 19 or whenever this was made saying that. And it's like, you're a cop. Yeah. Right. Do you not get that you don't interview the 13 year old next to the boyfriend and wife where the, the, the woman, the girlfriend had just gotten pregnant, which is a kind of a danger place. And it turned out the boyfriend was known to be abusive and to sexually molest people and stuff, which he probably did to this girl, although she never comes around and uh. says it. She did, the woman who she is now said, you know, if a 13-year-old clams up, maybe the cop should wonder why she's clamming up about something like her mother does. But, but the cops, it doesn't look like they ever even looked at this guy or his wife for the murder, and of course, spoiler, he ended up being the murderer. And there are just a lot of missing pieces as far as the timelines and investigations go, so I have to take away a point for that. Inaccuracy, anachronism. I'm going to take away half a point because they do try to be true, a lot of these, because they're, they're cold cases from the 70s, 80s, 90s, but there are, they show a girl and one that was the 90s talking on a cell phone. And it turns out she did have a cell phone, but it was one of those big clunky ones that almost looks like a cordless phone now. Yeah. But when they showed her talking on it, and like they showed her actual phone. But when they show her talking on it in the reenactment, it's a much smaller, more modern cell phone. Little things, the way people talk, you know, they use phrases that they'd use today that they wouldn't have used a few decades ago and stuff. So I'm taking away half a point. Storytelling. I'm taking away half a point. I think they do. <laughs> I think they do a good job with the families telling, you know, what happened and how it affects them. The storytelling is fairly linear, but sometimes it kind of goes back and forth a little. But they deliberately leave out things and then tell you about them later to add to the drama. But then it turns out the thing that they left out happened like really early in the investigation. So they almost kind of manufacture this hole in the investigation that wasn't there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard. it makes like sense. Like they manipulate, in a general sense, they manipulate facts to up the drama, and it just confuses what was going on with the investigation. So that's half a point taken off. Freshness. I guess this is the one category I'm not going to take off any points. Wow. I mean, there are a zillion true crime shows out there, and there are cold case true crime shows, and there are true crime shows about families who were relentless to get their family members' murder solved. But I, the combination of the family being relentless and it being a cold case is a nice angle that actually I I'm obviously watching it even though I think it got what two points or something like that. Yes, yeah, so I'm keeping track since I doubt. Oh, you thank are. you. Yeah, thanks. Okay, repetition. I am not going to take away any points for repetition. Ooh, beating the drum. I am not going to take away any points. I could because. At the end, like a lot of true crime shows that bug me, you get the relentless, like, death penalty and that type of stuff. 
I just get annoyed with it. But they, they aren't too bad about it. So okay. And they are telling the family story, so that's why I'm not taking away any points. So this show ended up with three and a half points? Yes. I'm not saying don't watch it. I plan to you still... You obviously like it. Well, I don't necessarily obviously like it. I had watched two or three episodes before I went on vacation because I was just looking for something to watch. And there were so many things, particularly concerning the reenactments, I'm like, oh, God, I have to do an NNW on this. And I I actually took some notes, but I had only watched, I think, two episodes. And so I watched three more last night, so I would have, have watched enough episodes to be able to talk about it. It's the kind of show where if you're just looking for, like, some true crime thing to watch and your brain is dead and you just want something to kind of wash over you, (laughs) the reenactments are so bad, they're funny, I find them entertaining, Yeah, but not in a way they're probably supposed to be. I do get frustrated, although this would be with any crime show, and I know there are good cops and there are very smart cops. But it's a show about cold cases, and a lot of cold cases, especially older ones, seem to be cold cases because of investigative missteps and stupidity and having blinders on and laziness. I cannot believe in this day and age, even though he's an old retired cop, a cop would think it was okay to try to interview a 13-year-old whose mother had disappeared with her boyfriend and Mm. his wife right there and even if the Mm. boyfriend and wife weren't right there it's still the guy well i guess she had some loyalty to them since she lived with them for a few months instead of maybe they killed her mother and and she's afraid to say something or that perv is you know molesting her but i find that frustrating on any true crime show where the police obviously just were not understanding what was going on Mm. yeah our next episode yes you I will, will be have, doing a story, yes. and I'll do an NNW. Yes. So I guess that's it, right? I mean, I know we have some spiel stuff we could say, but to tell you the truth, I didn't get a lot of sleep. It's friggin' humid, uh, and I need to go to bed and get up. And crimeandstuffonline.com, you can find whatever you need. Right. Please go, if you aren't a patron, go on our thing and see my new um <laughs> my logo. New, <laughs> our, Not yeah. only the logo, but the little, like, the different tiers of... The little characters, For yes. donations. I redid are, them. You redid yes. them, yeah. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And yeah. your, thank you for your support. And rate and review us. Please. Five yeah. stars. I think that's it. Okay, thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Whose case was featured? What do you want? Mom's coming in my room. What? Did you feed the cats, too? Yes. There were no dirty dishes. Oh, I forgot to feed them. (laughs) (laughs) What? Shall I feed them? Yes, can you feed them, please? I'll be happy to. Thank you, Ma. Oh. (laughs) I'm sorry, Mom just told me I'm a bad mom. I heard her. <laughs> <laughs>